Back to the book of Acts. We turn this morning to pick up at the third chapter of Dr. Luke's second volume of Christ's work and his actions in the world, for that's exactly what Acts truly is. It is the continuing saga of Jesus' work in the world, first as a man walking on the face of the earth in his incarnate state, uh, and then Uh, And that recorded in Luke's first volume, of course, the gospel that bears his name, and then by his spirit at work in and through his church, as recorded here in Acts. Last week, we heard Dr. Luke's description of the early church, the priorities of the early church in the days immediately following Pentecost. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. In shorthand, they devoted themselves to God's word, to God's worship, and to one another. But in the middle of that text from last Sunday, you might remember, Luke noted that many wonders and signs were being done in uh, their midst through the apostles. We made no effort to look into that last week, but uh, we come this week to a wonderful example of those signs and wonders in chapter 3. After first, we pray. Father in heaven, we ask for your blessing and your direction as we enter into uh, this reading and hearing of your word. But more, we pray for the Holy Spirit to do the very work that we um, prayed about earlier this morning in our very first hymn, that he himself will be here, opening your word to us, illumining our hearts to receive your truth In the deepest places, we pray and ask for such a blessing. We dare only ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who, had, who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's, astounded. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, 
Why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And by his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know the faith that is through Jesus Christ Jesus has given the man, the man this perfect health in the presence of you all and now brothers i know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers but what god foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his christ would suffer he thus Fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, You are the sons of the prophets. And of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. If the lesson we learned last week was that we ought to imitate the early church, ought to adopt the priorities of the church immediately after Pentecost, namely devoting ourselves to the word, to worship, and to one another, is it not equally true that we should be looking for miracles, for signs and wonders today as well? Well, let me begin to answer that question by making this caveat, this um, point of explanation before we go one step further so that there may be no misunderstanding. We are never to doubt that God could provide us today with any number of miracles if it so pleased him to do so. He could fill his church with signs and wonders, just as surely as he did in the days of the apostles. And let me go on to add 
that God continues to do marvelous and wonderful and astounding things in answer to our prayers. You have seen remarkable restorations of health, comebacks from diseases, from cancer, and so on. In answer to the prayers that we've offered lately in this house of worship, we've recently witnessed the restoration of one of the friends of our congregation, a relative rising from what most certainly might have been her deathbed, the place where she might otherwise have spent the rest of her life um, in a comatose state to virtually complete health and strength and mental faculty. So let me not be heard this morning to say that God cannot or does not continue to do wonderful things. He does. But back to the question, should we be looking for miracles, for signs and wonders? Today, ought we to expect to witness the sort of healings that Jesus performed and that the apostles performed in days like this one, the healing of the man born lame? By Peter. Well, we can begin to answer that question by considering when such miracles have occurred, and then by considering why they have occurred. First, when have such miracles as this one occurred according to Scripture? Well, if you search your Bibles, you will find that they are concentrated around three main epochs of revelation, around a few great figures in the history of salvation. Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, and Jesus and the apostles. Now take those miracles away, and you have very few miracles left. And all of them have to do with prophetic revelation and the holy war of the Old Testament church. The vast, vast majority of the saints in either testament of the Bible never once witnessed a miracle or even needed to witness a miracle personally. In other words, in the entire history of the church and of redemption, only a tiny, tiny minority of God's people witnessed personally a miracle like this, like what is being described here. And that is not at all unreasonable when you consider, second, why miracles occurred when they did in the Bible. Why did Jesus perform those healings, many of which we read about in Luke's gospel as we were making our way through that over the past few years. Well, Peter, whose own mother-in-law, you remember, was also healed miraculously by Jesus, told us himself in his Pentecost sermon that we read just a few weeks ago from chapter 2 of this book of Acts, that Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. 
In other words, there is a very specific purpose there was for the miracles. And it wasn't primarily about healing people or making people better or causing the lame to walk. It was to reveal the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Like the other miracles in the Bible, limited as they are, for the most part, to very specific and narrow periods of biblical history, they were for the purpose of revelation, of pointing to God, and specifically of pointing to Christ. Hence the word sign. It points to someone, to Christ. Of course, the biggest problems with modern miracles is that they don't have the character of the wonders and signs that the miracles in the Bible did. Those miracles were undeniably authentic. The miracles about which we read in the Bible were the real deal, and here's the thing, everybody knew it. Everybody knew it. Even Jesus' enemies, even the apostles' enemies, could not deny that these were real miracles. That they had really done these great works. But today, as someone has said, the unconvinced go and look and come away unconvinced. And the persuaded can only go on talking about things that happened to someone else, someplace else. This was never the case with God's power unleashed in miracles in the Bible. This is another reason, by the way, why I'm very unimpressed by many moderns who claim to be miracle workers today. So much of it is so-called, of the so-called miracles uh, are done for the sake of the miracles or, or for the sake of the miracle worker. Not to mention the fact that nobody, nobody is doing the sorts of miracles that Jesus did, directly or indirectly through his apostles. Nobody is raising dead people. Nobody is replacing lost limbs or stilling storms. Sometime back, a new ministry started here in town. and When I met the lady who was in charge of this, she, she took my hand and congratulated me. Oh, I said, for, oh, for what? Well, she told me, literally she told me, that I and the other pastors in town were not going to have to perform any more funerals. And that visits to the hospital were going to be for us a thing of the past. They had arrived. Their miracle-working ministry was now here, and no more were people in my congregation going to die or even get sick anymore. But not one single person since then has been raised from the dead in Owensboro. And the last time I visited the hospital, every bed was full. What is more, 
And please don't misunderstand me on this point. I don't tell you this out of insensitivity. But her husband was an acquaintance of mine for some time, and one day he became ill. And for several weeks I met with him and, and uh, talked to him, and every time I saw him, he was worse. And in a matter of weeks, he was dead. He, the miracle worker's husband. Now, does all of that mean that Jesus no longer has the power he once had to heal? Of course, that's not what it means. Especially now in his glorified state, Jesus, the Lord God of All of the universe from the right hand of the Father in heaven has power over all things and is more than free to work any number of miracles he wants at any time. We do not deny that Jesus is able to work miracles today, anytime he likes. But if he does, and when he does, as Phil Riken once pointed out, it is very rare which is, he went on to say, exactly why it's called a miracle. Now, of the fact that Peter had performed a miracle that day in raising up this lame man from birth, was, uh, there was no doubt that day. Nobody, nobody doubted it. Nobody questioned it. Yet it was not Peter, Peter himself argues, it was not Peter and John who did this, but Christ through them who performed this miraculous healing. And there lies face up for us one lesson of this passage. We are called as Christians, we're still called to do great and wonderful and marvelous things today. To bring the gospel, to bring the good news of salvation to a perishing and lost world. That's our calling, marvelous and wonderful as it is. But notice this, we're not called to save people. We're not called to save people. Or recalling last week's text, we are not called to build Christ's church. No, we are called to serve Christ who saves the lost. We are called to worship God who builds up his church. Forgetting that, we inevitably fall into one of two traps. Either despondency and despair and discouragement on the one hand when we fail to accomplish what we think we should be able to accomplish Or on the other hand, to unfaithful and unbiblical behavior in our efforts, however well motivated, to produce results, to deliver the goods, to get the numbers into church and so on, in ways that run counter to Christ's instructions and his intentions. Anytime we forget that it is not we 
It is not we, but Christ working in us. We're headed for trouble and for grief. Self-reliance, reliance on techniques, on our own machinations, which leads also to pride, which leads, of course, to the fall, is where we go when we rely on ourselves and on anything other than Christ. Peter understood that in a way, as we will see later, that Herod worm food did not, and so gave glory where glory was due to God and to God alone. Which means, of course, that the results also will be God's all the time. Whether that means that our evangelism, our proclamation of Christ results in the conversion of many or few or none at all is a matter completely left with God. And we will see that again and again as we make our way through the book of Acts, the Lord willing, in the months to come. There's a great comfort there, isn't there? I mean, a liberating effect in knowing that we have but to, to speak and to act, to love on Christ's behalf and leave all of the rest of it to him, all of it to Christ. To give the increase exactly as he wills. From you he requires nothing more than this. That you be faithful and willing to be his instrument. That's all he requires of you. In other words, as we're wont to say in this house of worship, salvation is all of Grace, all by God's grace, from beginning to end, by God's power that summons and then enables a man or woman, boy or girl, to follow Christ, to obey his voice when he says to them, rise up and follow me. This miracle here in Acts 3 is a marvelous demonstration, a sign, if you will, of just that, of the saving way Jesus is at work in the world still today. In many ways, it serves the same exact purpose as Jesus' miracles did in Jesus' day on the earth physically. It is a picture of salvation. Remember how Jesus, all the way back in Luke 5, healed that paralytic. Remember this when we studied? uh, They lowered him through the roof into the house, and Jesus healed him. He took that opportunity of physical healing to teach the more important and weightier matter of spiritual healing. Before he healed that man, as a matter of fact, first, if you recall, he said to him, what? Your sins are forgiven. Or Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead. You remember what he said on that occasion. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live, even though he dies. Well, here, a hopelessly lame man, lame from birth, leaps for joy. What's The point, just this, salvation has come 
That's the point. And what does salvation look like? Well, look at the miracle. It begins with a divine summons. That's how salvation begins. Rise and walk. Jesus calls because Jesus saves. And when he calls, he commands. The Savior Jesus is always also the Lord Jesus. Believing in Jesus is obedience to his command. As the Apostle Paul describes it, it is the obedience of faith. Unbelief, in other words, is not just unfortunate, it is disobedient. It's rebellion. People are not victims of unbelief. They are perpetrators. But with the divine summons to believe comes, in the case of the elect, the power to do it. This lame man didn't have it in himself to rise. It had to be given to him to rise. Remember Augustine's wonderful line? Command what you will, O Lord, but give what you command. When you came to faith in Jesus Christ, my brothers and sisters here, whether that was in your 30s or 13, or like the psalmist at your mother's breast, it was because Jesus came and gave it to you, gave you the gift of faith by his Spirit. You believe, you obey Jesus' commandment to believe precisely because Jesus gave you that faith to believe to begin with. And then finally, where salvation genuinely comes to a person, this miracle teaches us also, a deep and abiding change takes place in that person's life. Not just a superficial change now, not just turning over a new leaf. From the inside out, that person is changed. He leaps for joy. He praises God. He joins with the apostles. This is salvation. This is what salvation looks like, how it acts, all encapsulated in this miracle. Dr. Lloyd-Jones, who, as you know, after his true fashion, who have read Dr. Lloyd-Jones, preached at least half a dozen sermons on this text, says of this particular section, Here we see authentic Christianity and nothing else. This is parable by miracle. So, What lesson for us, then, who are already Christians by faith, by the faith that Jesus himself has given us to believe in him and to follow him? Well, just this. Jesus is still in the business of saving people, of causing the blind to see and the lame to leap for joy and the dead to be made alive again. 
Even if you never live to see some guy lame from birth jump out of his wheelchair and run around Walmart like a madman screaming out praises to God, Jesus is still saving people every day, doing great and awesome deeds. Let's think about this for a moment. The greatest miracle being done today that God is still doing is the transformation of blackened, sin-soaked hearts into places that the Holy Spirit himself is glad to make his home. A washed, regenerated, renewed heart, as we heard about just a few minutes ago in the assurance of pardon. The heart of stone transformed into a heart of flesh. Regeneration is the word the Bible uses for it. The the granting of spiritual life and faith where there was to that point only death and the rebellion of unbelief. That, my friends, (laughs) that's a miracle. And God is doing that every day and every minute of every day. Christian, you need only to be faithful. You need only be true to your Savior in your daily deeds, what you do, how you act, in your words, what comes out of your mouth, in your interactions with others. You can't save anybody any more than the apostles could save anybody and knew it. But you can, like Peter and John, Be a humble instrument whom God uses in the process of working miraculously in another person's heart. Live your lives, Christians, expecting to see that. Amen.